You're listening to Bloom in Tech with David Bloom. This podcast sponsored by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Bloom in Tech. I'm your host, David Bloom, and we are back for another foray into the collision of media, entertainment, and technology, picking through the rubble to find a few golden nuggets of wisdom. So glad you could join us once again. This week, I did a couple of panel conversations. Actually, there were one-on-one conversations at the NatP Streaming Plus virtual conference. And one of those was with Adam Lewinson, who's chief content officer for Tubi, which is the biggest of the ad-supported video-on-demand services. Uh, this spring, they were bought by Fox for $440 million. I've done several of these over the last few years with Adam, so we know each other well. Last time I saw him was at Sundance. Since then, they've gone through quite a lot of changes, as you can imagine, having come under the Fox umbrella, adding some of the Fox programming to begin with, still working on expanding into some new territories, but uh, they've seen some big growth in their first three international territories, which are Mexico, Australia, and Canada. More importantly, overall, they've seen some huge jumps in just the last year, and even the last uh, since this year started, as you can imagine, a free service that provides a wide array of programming, ad-supported programming. Uh, Streaming is going to be pretty attractive to a lot of folks stuck at home during the pandemic, lockdown, and recession. So we had lots to talk about there. Some of the other news, they are launching a uh, Spanish-language service within Tubi, or a section, I guess, within Tubi. We got into some much broader questions about whether streaming in general, opportunities within uh, ad-supported video on demand versus subscription video on demand, whether they'll ever have originals and much else. I really, it was a great conversation, so give it a listen. We'll be right back. And here's my. And here's my conversation with Adam Lewinson, Chief Content Officer for Tubi.tv. And I am delighted to be here once again with uh, my old sparring pal, Adam Lewinson, Chief Creative Officer, Chief Culture Officer, really. I like Cultural Officer. I kind of like that better. You like that better? We could also yeah. say content. How about that? Chief content. All right. Yeah. But I like creative and cultural because that's kind of part of what you do too. Um, yeah. as, as the top guy, you've got a background at places like Fox, if I recall. And now, once again, you're back in the mothership with a lot of news in hand. Uh, as of two minutes ago, four minutes ago now, you all released a couple of uh, big bits of news. Um, I guess the first one is it turns out during a pandemic with uh, no money, and uh, lots of time to look at TV. People did, and they looked at Tubi a lot. So tell us about that first bit of news. Yeah, for sure. Well, first of all, David, it's always great to see you. Sadly, it's virtual this time, but it's... Not uh, like Sundance. Exactly. We did get to spend better time. We had a good breakfast at Sundance. So we'll, we'll be back to normal, hopefully soon. And, and hopefully everybody who's watching this is doing okay. So obviously now's not a great time for humanity, let's put it that way. But uh, given that people are home and a lot of people are economically distressed, people are just looking to stream content. So certainly numbers are up, you know, for, for lots of streamers. So for Tubi, we announced this morning we've now hit 33 million MAU, which is monthly active users. 
which is up, I believe it's 65% year over year. So pretty, pretty significant growth. And, you know, with that, MAU is just sort of a, a, a metric that people like to share. We've been sharing it, so we like to continue sharing it. How do you know, just to interrupt, but just to be clear, I mean, year over year, that's big, uh, yeah. 65%, almost two thirds. But even from the start of the year, you guys were saying 25 million, I think, at the start of the year. When we talked uh, February ish at Sundance uh, a thousand years ago in February, I think you guys were talking 25 million at that point. That was right before. I mean, it was already kind of hitting other, uh, other places, but this was like the last hurrah of like cool things that we get to do together. 25 million to 33 million, 8 million is, uh, that's a third in five months yeah four months. so that's pretty big too yeah i appreciate that it's a it's a pretty big leap it's it's also great that it's it's not only been consistent but we also really feel strongly that it's it's a metric right it's it's a way that people like to measure services emmy is really a better metric for svod since it ties to subscriptions right avod's really about consumption so the thing that we feel like is even more important is what we call TVT, total view time. How many hours are people streaming to be? And more is better, right? That's the point, because you're trying to get audience, audience, it's bodies looking at stuff, right? Exactly. We make money when we fire ads, ultimately, right? So starting in April and consistently since then, Tubi set over 200 million hours of TVT. So it's a it's a really good metric. Uh, I, I also think it's a metric where you can just make an apples to apples comparison between any streaming service, which isn't really true with the MAU. You and I could nerd out about that for hours and hours, but- Oh, uh, let's not, please, please. <laughs> let's, let's do something else. Anything yeah. else, please. But you also, so so- Great growth. It turns out, uh, indeed, people want to watch. They want to watch free. They like free. It feels a little bit like what they know, right? It feels a little bit like broadcast and all that, but it actually, you've got some on-demand component. You've got some linear component. You've got stuff that people can do and watch, right? We had to be more specific. Uh, we are 100% video on-demand, so we, we don't have that linear component at the moment. It's really just free Netflix. That's the easiest way to say it. And there's really been a generational shift that I know you and I have talked about in the past, where really it's millennials and younger. You know, they they grew up differently. They didn't necessarily grow up with a remote control in their hand. They're, they're different, those kids. Those oh, kids. Get off my TV. Exactly right. But basically, you know, age, let's say mid-30s and younger, really the preference uh, isn't the EPG and it isn't the grid. And it's not necessarily live. There's certainly, you know, as we evolve into the future, live is still obviously important for key live events. That's primarily sports, news for the, for the most part. And then some of these big communal TV shows, you know, let's say The Masked Singer, right? The biggest show on television, Apple Fox. This is interesting because you're talking about it because like it's a communal experience, but you guys have The Masked Singer. That's like the first thing that came from Fox, right? And you're yeah. one guys got bought in, in well i guess it closed in april it was announced in march but that was like the first thing but you think well that's a reality competition show how does that play weeks later pretty well right well, yeah it plays exceptionally well i mean it's just the reality of there's certain audiences and unfortunately a huge audience that's watching shows like the mass singer live on fox and then there's an audience of typically younger demos streamers 
who aren't watching it on the network. So for them, it's a brand new show. And we're rolling out episodes still with a weekly cadence. And we're also seeing co-viewing. So it, it really is functioning in the same way. It's just a different audience. When, when you say co-viewing, I mean, it's just a bunch of people in a room, kind of like the old days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny because we've got this whole new vocabulary that we developed for streaming. It's like co-viewing. It's like, that's called viewing in you know, 1994. Yeah. You know, we'd be all in a room together. We didn't have like an iPad and a, uh, an Android phone and God knows what else. We'd just be watching TV or hating our mom and dad or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Last time, you know, at, at Nappy in person, right back in January in Miami, you know, I, I was presenting with slides and it just showed how people used to watch TV, which was four people on a couch. There's one TV, there's one remote control. And that still happens, certainly in my family, if we're watching football, if we're watching baseball, if we're watching Mass Singer or other shows that we all agree on. Otherwise, it's four people in a living room. Everyone's got their headphones on and everyone's watching something else. So it's co-location as opposed to co-viewing is what you're saying, typically. Well, there is that now. Yeah. Well, certainly now that we're all stuck at home. Absolutely. So the co-viewing thing is happening a lot. Do you have any stats? I know you did that study. They're continuing to stream content at high rates. Turn to AOD, AVOD, uh, or FAST, for yeah. those of us who uh, work with Alan Walk. The free ad-supported TV. Are they The co-viewing thing, do you have any stats on how much people are watching together? I've heard some stuff from some other folks I've done conversations like this with that also provide streaming, like for children's programming. They see a lot of that. And I'm just sort of curious what you're seeing. Well, just at, at a high level, because we really haven't shared a lot of these stats uh, in public, but basically it's it tends to be the bigger reality shows along the lines of Mass Singer, Hell's Kitchen, Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares, sort of the shows that people are co-viewing. Gordon Ramsay, Gordon Ramsay, known for family-friendly viewing, right? I, well, yeah, at least at least my family. <laughs> my, kids, my kids know all the words now. Wait, so. okay. <laughs> yeah, they may have known them. When they bleep, they're like, that was that word. It's like, oh, uh, thank you for that forensic uh, investigation, investigation, darling. You know? Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, it, it is also, you're absolutely right. It is, it is kids and family viewing. We certainly see that with some of the bigger DreamWorks titles. We've had Shrek in the past. This month we have Monsters versus Aliens. And these are movies that parents will watch with their kids. Perhaps we'll talk about this a bit later, but right now we're, we're prepping Anpan Man, which is this massive kids franchise out of Asia that's really never been in the U.S., certainly has never been in English or Spanish. And as we've been working on it and prepping it, all of us adults just get drawn in and we're like, adults are really going to watch this with their kids. So there is that use case for co-viewing. And it's, there's other times where really viewership, it's just now it's micro targeting. And this is where Tubi's algorithms, I know you and I have talked about in the past and just the content personalization. Sometimes you just want to watch what is your comfort TV, right? For some people, in the pandemic, their comfort TV is watching pandemic horror movies. For other people, it's romantic comedies or classic TV shows. And whatever that is, I think that's where AVOD and, and Tubi certainly is great at that sort of micro-targeting, which is obviously a very different business model than broadcast or cable. 23,000 titles, sounds like a lot. Uh, that's a lot of hours of programming, uh, probably more than I could spend uh, on a Sunday evening. But you guys are actually carving out another part of your big news of the day, since you apparently want to fill up the entire newspaper, if we still had newspapers. <laughs> right. uh, 
go on Spanish language. You've got 3,000 hours of Spanish language material going to be uh, carved off in its own spot on the main app, but I think only on Roku, correct? Oh, so, just at, at launch, yeah. At so launch. as of today, it's launching on Roku, and then just our typical pattern, it will populate uh, across all of the, our different devices. So soon to be everywhere. Soon to be everywhere. Uh, like us, we're soon to be everywhere. Uh, but so to, to be on Espanol, 3,000 hours, Spanish language content, it's not a separate app which I find interesting, it's folded in. And what do you think the opportunity is? And I'm, I'm really curious because I know some services make a big deal out of it. We have an opportunity with a bilingual audience that kind of goes back and forth. So what's what's your all's perception of the opportunity here and, and why now? Tubi in Espanol has been a huge passion project for us at Tubi for really quite some time. And Passion, it is, passion project. Yeah, there you go, right. Proyecto Pasión, I think. Oh, very, very nice. Yeah, uh, yeah and, and really, it's, it's a journey that started with, a little less than a year ago, we rolled out Tubi Kids, which is similar, right? It's, it's a, you click on the button within the Tubi app, and then you go into the kids section, COPA compliant, right? Uh, kid appropriate content. And we really just saw the need for that separate section for, for that purpose. And we also concurrently saw the same opportunity for Spanish language viewers, where obviously here in the U.S. there's a, a huge native speaking Spanish language population and a huge desire to just watch content that speaks to them. So really part of Tubi's mission is to super serve underserved audiences. There you go. I just plugged the, the name of this session. There you go. Peter, thanks you for doing that. And yeah. uh, Dan and, and Garrett, thank you for doing that. So we've we've close the loop on that one. Check that box. So really there is a need in free streaming just to have this massive library of Spanish language content and very diverse. So it's telenovelas, it, there's some dubbed Hollywood content, kids content, horror movies, you name it, just completely in Espanol. And when you click the button, you're in that Spanish language experience. So really, uh, where, where are your suppliers on this? Some of it's Hollywood studios, obviously, but where else are you getting this stuff from? Because telenovelas, Mexico, Colombia, Venezuela are all big suppliers. Where else are you getting this? Yeah, really all of the above. It's, it's mostly with existing content partners where either they have Spanish language versions or we've already had a very robust library of Spanish language content. Really, we've just over the past six months just pressed down the accelerator just mm -hmm. to add more and more. And a, a lot of it comes from some new partnerships where we launched in Mexico earlier this summer. So we have a partnership with TV Azteca and other content owners in, in LATAM. So for example, I'm, I want to get this right, right. Juana La Virgen, which is the original Jane the Virgin right. from Venezuela. That's something that we are going to have now on, in To Be An Español probably is going to be interesting for fans of Jane the Virgin and then just people who want to watch telenovelas. And it, was a huge, it was a huge hit. I mean, that, and before it yeah. got made into a hit here, an Emmy-winning hit here, it was a huge hit there for a long time. That's like main, big name stuff. Beautiful, I think, is one too that you guys are doing. That's a, another big program. So there's some, some nice content there. You also have some foreign language content from exotic places like Canada, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah, really uh, it, more and more all over the globe, certainly in Canada where we are live and we're partners with with Rogers up in Canada, local content from Australia. Part, part of what we've been doing is taking localized content in different countries and bring it over to the U.S. And then obviously as we roll out internationally, vice versa. So it's been a really nice source of content 
increasingly more and more from Asia and other territories. So uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. And I think too, just given a lot of this content is going to be very personalized. So we just started to have a, a Bollywood section, which isn't for everyone. Not everybody wants to watch Bollywood all the time, but we absolutely have a very passionate following of Bollywood content. And there's the, the collection. Right. And there's definitely a set of folks that do want to watch Bollywood all yeah. the time. There's no doubt about it. And you got a 1.4 billion people in a diaspora across the planet. It's it's a, not a bad audience. But you guys at this point internationally are only in, what, three other countries? Is that correct? I mean, one of them is, again, the exotic locale of Canada. Two is Mexico and three is Australia. Is that right? Those are the yeah. So they're all taken off, right? I mean, you guys had big, even bigger viewership jumps there than you did in the United States. Right. We, we did report some pretty strong growth in, in all of these countries. And we are prepping a launch in the UK as well. Our international rollout has certainly been very deliberate. And we want to plant a flag, grow the audience, and really localize. That's really been, particularly with Mexico, which was our first non-English language app. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't just a U.S. app that we just poured over into Mexico, that it was 100% in Espanol, mostly a focus on local content and local, I'm sorry, content across LATAM, which has I been great. That's the biggest Spanish language market in the world, Mexico, right? If I recall correctly, because even Spain, even the mother country, I think has a, is a smaller country than Mexico is in population. And all of Central America, I mean, South America, Brazil's Portuguese, everybody else is smaller than Mexico by far, though there are some big broadcasters down there. Yeah, well, as I, I've learned a great expression, which is Mexico is the gateway into LATAM. Ah. So it's a great place to start. And we certainly have great partners with TV Azteca. It looks like uh, Michael Mandeville gave us our first really good question from the audience. Oh. Bless him. And it's one that you and I have asked that we've talked about before. And I have a good idea how you're going to answer. Is to be considering any originals or buying uh, originals from modest budget uh, providers and uh, web, ca uh, web series content creators. Are you considering any of that stuff? Mm. Well, yeah, let me give you a two-part answer. In terms of original content, right, it's, I'm going to put that into the category of never say never. It's certainly, as you know, from uh, now, <laughs> yeah, as you, as you know, from my past, you know, I've, I've certainly spent a lot of time working in, in that area at FX and at, at, at Sony Crackle. You know, the, the original content ecosystem is quite complex and quite expensive. I think those are really two important words. You know, when I used to work for John Landgraf back at FX, who famously has talked about peak TV. And then he made it worse with a lot of good programming, but still, it's not like, dude, you're helping. It's true. Well, but have we even reached the peak? Because it seems like certainly with SVOD, and it's baked into SVOD's business model, just to pump in some massive dollars with really elite content. I mean, certainly that ecosystem is a bit overheated and... Can the monetization follow the expense? I, I think that's a, a truly existential question that really not just streamers and, and platforms, but certainly everyone in, in the ecosystem really needs to come to terms with. So yeah, it's, it's a very challenging, overheated time. In terms of web content, I, I will say this. We have a policy where we don't take short-form content. We leave that to YouTube and others who've been massively successful with short-form. It's just, Tubi is predominantly a living room experience where it's more about a long-form experience as opposed to short-form. Our viewers are watching, on average, session times of two hours. 
And typically with short form, you're not sitting there for two hours watching two minute clips. And typically we don't go for what I would call YouTube content. And certainly content owners, when they pitch us, if they hear that back from me, they sometimes don't care for that. But there's, there's a certain qualitative level where Tubi is TV. So we're looking for that quality bar. And by the way, if it's met, we're eager to have that content. Yeah, there's certainly been some great stuff that's been done on a short, somewhat shorter form. But I mean, I guess what you're saying is there's not going to be a Tubi TikTok. There are going to be lots of uh, proliferating TikTok copycats and I call it TikTokical as Oracle <laughs> buying in. But it won't be a Tubi, Tubi talk won't be coming anytime soon. I, David, I, I think that is fair. That is fair. It's just not going to happen. I, I see here Jack Sullivan asked. Part of his question actually sort of stepped on top of Michael Mandeville's, which you already answered about. Originals ain't happening anytime soon. Cost uh, is crazy and it's complicated. It's a whole new universe of production and making it all happen, and particularly with all the superheated efforts to get that. But Jack Sullivan asks, is then your vision to license partner ever larger amounts of content to grow your available library? So you've got a whole bunch of stuff out there. Are you guys still acquiring a lot of stuff? Constantly. So yes, fortunately, I have a, a phenomenal team. Just every day there, we're looking at new content partners. We're working closely with our existing to find out what else can we get? What do you have? And increasingly, we're getting first window content, right? We, we haven't produced it. I'm not calling it an original per se, but there's titles that we're getting first window or in some cases, a very fast second window. There's a, a really terrific animated movie called Henchman, where it's going to come out in a couple of months on TVOD with a very quick fast follow onto Tubi. So that is absolutely in our DNA. We do have a voracious appetite for content. Obviously, it's a give and take, right? We're at Nappy. Virtually, everything's a transaction. So I think so much of it is what Tubi's strength is, is finding the right audience for the piece of content. So this month, for example, we have the Hunger Games franchise, all four movies. Happens to be the first time ever in free streaming that, that any platforms had all four movies. So obviously there's a financial expectation for The Hunger Games, right? One of the biggest franchises out there. On the other hand, we may have a, a niche film. And so long as the content partner or the producer understands that, okay, I've, I've built something, you know, maybe it's very hyper-targeted for the LGBTQ plus community, or it's a very micro movie. I'll give you a great example in our uh, getting back to super serving underserved audiences in our black cinema category, which is one of our most popular categories and has been pretty, it predates me. So more than three years at, at Tubi, black cinema has always been in Tubi's DNA. One of our content partners made a movie called Quarantine Relationship, which you can imagine they shot mid-quarantine. Yeah, what was the search on that one? It must have been going crazy. You know, it's it's a very interesting movie and it's it's very targeted. It's very niche. But uh, just given Tubi's audience, it has absolutely found its audience from day one. And yeah, I think having quarantine in the title, obviously topical and it doesn't hurt right. these days. Right, because it's actually, you know, that's called everybody that's on OkCupid or Tinder or whatever, basically, is quarantine relationship. And I, I'm interested, though, because streaming is the this essential differences are one, the interactivity, but two, the data. 
and mm. how you use that. And so let's talk a little bit about you blithely throw off terms like micro-targeting. Again, this whole new vocabulary that we've all come to know and cherish in the streaming era and the quarantine streaming era, but micro-targeting. So let's talk about it because the company's roots are really in ad tech way, way back. I mean, Tubi's an OG company. Yeah, but some of this sort of manifested. I mean, they go and say, well, we know how to do ads. Let's put some content around our ads. <laughs> 10 years later, you sell it for 440 million. So good idea on that one, guys. Uh, worked out. But let's talk about data stuff and how precise you get and the opportunity you all see. And that, where does that go from here, particularly in time when we are seeing more push on privacy and children's marketing stuff so that to be kids and all that how how do you guys navigate that space you know what's your whatever you can tell about your secret sauce uh, for success in terms of that targeting to super serve those underserved audiences i guess this i will say the secret sauce really is just this intersection of media and technology and that is that's really the narrative, obviously a narrative that you've been following for what the past five, six years, maybe seven years. I, I was doing media technology crossovers with Gutenberg. So oh, there you go. There you go. You are definitely OG following this trend. That's right. You know, the printing press was a big deal in 1498. So I'm <laughs> well, there's that. Uh, yeah, look, I, I remember the quaint, my quaint basic cable days where you have the research team and you're just looking at Nielsen data. And today I'm interacting with data scientists who are plowing through big data. And when you're looking at, you know, 33 million monthly active users and you're looking at 200 million hours of consumption, there's a lot of data. And so you need to cut that into genres and you need to cut that into cohorts. But what I find fascinating, what I've always found fascinating, it just actually gets more exciting because when you only have Nielsen data or maybe MRI, you're getting insights, but it's limited. Yeah. And now really- a rush, right? I mean, it's sort of like, okay, we got four quadrants and it's older men, younger women, but you know, that's it, right? It's like, that's it. And go from there, go with God, right? Yeah, exactly. And now you're, you're taking that and you're, you're still looking at those data sets, you're just layering in with your proprietary data. And it, it really helps inform what people are watching and what they wanna watch more of. And every day that data informs my team, oh, you know what, this is working. You know what, we should go dig more. That's why we have Bollywood over the past year. And there's a, a couple of announcements to come on the anime front where you know our, our anime viewership is, is definitely- Lots well, going on. I mean, you've got Funimation uh, going crazy. Crunchyroll added a couple of new tiers. They told me it's a $20 billion sector worldwide. So there's an opportunity there for you guys. Yeah, for, for sure. And it, it's it's really interesting because, you know, just to look at the larger streaming ecosystem, which I, I know you and I have talked about quite a lot, for, certainly for a, a niche streamer, let's say, who's completely hyper-focused on anime, that's going to appeal to hyper fans. You know, it's it's interesting that Crunchyroll for their higher tiers, you're getting the merchandising. Mm. You know, they send you that shipment, and so for that, for that, yeah, exactly for that. You know, couple million people who just they just want to live and breathe. They need that same day anime from Japan. It absolutely makes sense. Most anime fans are a bit more casual. Yeah, and they have broader interests. Most, most humans have 
other things going on. But yes, and then no knock on anime because I like anime too. There's some amazing stuff there. But yes, some people are a little obsessive. They're a little otaku to use the Japanese. <laughs> there you go. Yes, there's definitely some fan service going on. Yeah. And by the way, we 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 definitely super serve that audience as well. And I look if if you're looking for anime. And you can afford uh, an, an SVOD service. You you likely will. I've seen this in the data. So to get back to your your question, the data is really informing that there there's a huge subset of a Tubi viewer who loves to watch anime. It tends to be the broader anime, some of the more popular or some of the more kid skewing, like a Naruto or a Yu Gi Oh, etc. You know, that's why we're investing with content like Ampon Man. But then they, there is a subset that loves to go deeper and deeper and deeper, all in a free environment. And then they're going to go watch an action movie or they're going to go watch a romantic comedy or they're going to go watch The Masked Singer. So really what's so interesting that, that you and I have talked about a bit in many ways, I, I think Avod in particular it's very much like the broadcast TV model in that you're reaching out to a mass audience. Mm. What's different is at any given time, the vast majority of your audience, they're all watching something different. So that's obviously what makes it completely different than a broadcaster. But that's really the mentality versus a cable network, which is really more like an SVOD. Right. It's more niche, right? It's more super serving one particular thing as opposed to for a Tubi where we're really looking to super serve every, whatever it is that you're looking for. We want to give you mass quantities of it. Cindy Thompson asks, I think, a, a particularly pertinent question on top of that specific topic. How does Tubi build user communities beyond co-viewing? I mean, how, and I think this is, to me, this is one of the essential questions of the future of streaming in the post-broadcasting era. It's like, how do you build communities? Because you can super serve that community and super serve those. But how do you connect them together? How do you make them feel like they're part of something together? How do you do that? Such a great question. And it is something that we talk about internally. And I think in, in many ways, it's, it's, a, it's a problem for technologists. I, I'm certainly not on the technology side. I'm on the media side. But we, we give it a lot of thought. I, I would say current state, those communities are in social media. So for instance, a lot of anime fans congregate on Reddit in those subreddits. And so we proactively reach out to that community on Reddit, on Twitter, on Facebook, wherever they may be, and inform them of, hey, we're super serving this niche, this niche, this niche. And the conversation is ongoing, let's say, on Reddit. Ultimately, that's the, the state of a streamer because, again, right, we're not, we're not a TikTok, we're not a Facebook. We don't have that community built into our app. But, you know, it's an interesting question, though. So the social media component, I write a lot about influencers, influencer marketing, all that stuff. Reddit is all about the hyper geeked out crowd of whatever it is, whatever that subreddit is. It's those folks are into it. Right. How does this intersect with your all social media platforms or presence on various platforms? How are you all exploiting that, taking advantage of that? Well, we have a social media team. That's really the easiest way to say it. And they're, they're identifying opportunities. And on the content side, my team is, is always pitching. Hey, mm -hmm. we've acquired this movie. It reaches this audience. You should really reach out to them here or here or here. I go back to Anpan Man for a second, just because that's something where we announced it earlier this summer. And we continue to get pinged on social media. When is it coming? Where is it? what's happening, who, who is the voice cast, right? We keep getting all of these questions. 
So sometimes the engagement, you know, social media is telling us what they're interested in. And by the way, I should also say too, our viewers are constantly using social media to tell us what they want to watch. And we, we pay attention to that. And if they say Game of Thrones, I say, well, you can watch that on HBO if you can afford it. And by the way, I'd love to just share a quick stat. And I, I have to just look at my stat screen because it's quite granular. But our, our brilliant PR team did a, uh, some research with one poll. And they came out with a stat. This was just a week or so ago. 25% of adults 18 to 34 canceled an SVOD in yeah. favor of AVOD. 39% of them are struggling to find new content on a streaming service that they already have. And this is a really interesting one. 25% started a free trial, canceled it. And they did that on average three times this summer, which is interesting. And then 38% of 18 to 24 are password sharing. So you roll all that up together. And if I'm an SBOT and I'm investing a billion dollars into content and yeah. I have people who come in, they take the free sample and then they bolt or they password share and I'm not making any money, it really makes you wonder about long-term. Obviously, SBOT is, is here and, and will remain here. I think it, it really speaks to the changing opportunity with AVOD, whereas I know you and I have talked about in the past, sort of the, just the ecosystem of television has been 10 to 15% pay, HBO, Showtime, et cetera. And the perception has been the opposite. And I think we're starting to see that trend of things leveling off, especially these days where so many people are hurting financially. And if people are canceling services before they have to pay for them, you know, that's that's economics. You'll pay for a, a, a streamer if you can afford it, obviously. So I think all of that bodes to sort of the leveling off with trends here with AVOD. Yeah, it's a really interesting time because on the one hand, the pandemic created a, an epic opportunity for streaming services of all kinds to get seen. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, because it basically hamstrung original production content, which was the way that you the originals helped drive People saying, oh, well, I'll pay for The Mandalorian, so I'll go look at Disney Plus. Or I'll, I want to see the, the morning show, so I'll do Apple TV Plus, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, uh, Peacock and, and HBO now uh, launched with just a handful of originals. And I, I think that, that, and they couldn't replace it because the production was basically shut down. So, right. so and it became the stuff. You know, you guys say, well, we're not going to charge you except for your time. So you get some value and you get stuff you can explore. We got lots of stuff to explore. So it becomes a better it becomes a better deal, I think, because you're not making your bones off of we've got a bunch of originals. We've got a deep library of new stuff that you've got to watch all the time. I mean, Netflix is Netflix and they're still cranking out 30 to 50 things a month, but they can do that for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, it looks like I think churns the, the churns the the beast that sits in the room and stares at you if you're one of the new subscription services, right? I mean, and do you guys have a big churn issue? I mean, because it doesn't really matter, right? No one's signing up. I mean, they, they sign up, but they come back, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, retention is incredibly important. And, and fortunately, our metrics there are really high. And just the nature of AVOD, it's very different because in SVOD, you're looking at your cable bill. And if you haven't watched a, an SVOD service in a month or two, you might look at your bill and go, right, yeah, I'm going to cancel that. I don't, I don't use that. Versus AVOD, where, you know, there, there's a, a, a stickiness 
in, in for apps, something that I've learned, right? I, you know, technically, Tubi isn't social, isn't Silicon Valley anymore. Right now, we're Fox, but certainly one of the things I've learned from from Silicon Valley is you create an emotional attachment to an app, and certainly that's something that Tubi has done. And this is where our algorithms and our content personalization engine really help because our viewers say to us, when I open Tubi, Tubi knows me, and they know what I want to watch. And if you have a new piece of content that's for me, uh, you surface it for me. And I think that stickiness has really led to retention. It leads to our viewers coming back more and more often per month, and obviously consumption numbers getting higher and higher. So yeah, all of those metrics are incredibly important. Uh, and I think too, in many cases, people are using original content really as a, as a as a marketing tool that absolutely can work in the SVOD model. I have to watch Game of Thrones, therefore I have to subscribe to HBO at least for this window of time to watch this show, and then hopefully I fall in love with the rest of the service and I go down that rabbit hole. The the trend that we're really seeing is. I will swarm to your service to watch what I want to watch, and then right. maybe I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go somewhere else. And really, the constant is AVOD, where we're always there, and certainly with Tubi, we're we're super serving that need. And look, we all do it. I go to SVOD services and I watch original content that I want to watch, and then I come back to Tubi as well. So it, it it's I think normal behavior, but really not all that different, really, than the history of TV over the past, what, 30 years? Yeah, since since cable came along and you had you had some options besides the big three, and then big four, your parent company. <laughs> so, Adam, where can people connect with you and or Tubi if they want to, say, give you a fabulous new library of incredible content that has never been seen before on Avod and Fast? Uh, well, David, I appreciate the question. Yeah, so uh, if you're watching out there and you're wondering, how do I reach out to Tubi? It's quite easy. There's an email address. It is content-acquisitions at Tubi.tv. Simple as that. Um, email, I'll say one more time, just in case, content-acquisitions at Tubi.tv. Uh, send an email. By the way, you should put in there, oh, I watched Nappy Virtual with Adam and David. Uh, certainly that can't hurt. Someone on my team, an actual human being, will review it. Uh, we, uh, unfortunately, we can't say yes to everything, obviously, but I think people would be surprised at how often we do say yes. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Adam Lewinson, the Chief Content Officer for Tubi.tv. Adam's a great guy. really enjoyed the conversation once again with him. I think this is the third or fourth of these I've done with him over the last three or four years. Lots to talk about, obviously. If you've enjoyed the conversation in our podcast, please consider rating, reviewing, sharing, and subscribing. If you really like the podcast, please also consider chipping in a few bucks through the service that uh, I use to host and syndicate my program, Anchor.fm, now a part of the Spotify podcast universe. They make it easy to um, support those whose uh, podcasts you enjoy. I also would love to hear from you. One easy way is through leaving an audio comment, again, through anchor.fm, or uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or at Twitter. I'm at David L. Bloom on LinkedIn and David Bloom at David Bloom on Twitter. Love to hear from you. Always love to hear from folks out there paying attention, thinking about where we are going in media and entertainment, how technology is shaping that. Hope you're doing well, staying safe and sane. 
And remember, this is a big election year, so please find time to vote. This is David Bloom for Bloom and Tech, over and out. You've been listening to Bloom and Tech. I am your host, David Bloom. Thanks so much. And our podcast has been sponsored in this episode by Fabric Media in Venice, California. Take care, everyone. Thank you.